Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today I'm speaking with Lindsay Campbell. Lindsay is a research social scientist with the U.S. Forest Service within the U.S. Department of Agriculture. She is located in New York as part of the Northern Research Station and is a founding member of the New York City Urban Field Station. With over 20 years in the Forest Service, her work has focused on the dynamics of civic stewardship, environmental governance, and sustainability policymaking, with a particular emphasis on issues of social and environmental justice. She aims to reveal how urban social ecological systems are structured and function in order to support human well-being and environmental quality using social science methods. She does this by pursuing co-production and transdisciplinary approaches to engage the many ways of knowing and to develop more inclusive approaches to knowledge development. In our conversation, we discuss Lindsay's early applied and transdisciplinary experiences and how she has navigated her career as a qualitative social scientist in a government position. We further discuss one of her ongoing projects on stewardship salons, which aims to create a space for environmental managers, practitioners, and scientists to critically exchange, learn, and have an open space for dialogue. Please enjoy my conversation with Lindsay Campbell. I think a good place to start would be where did you kind of get into academic interests and research? Where did you go to school? How did that that start for you? Yeah, well, I I work for the U.S. Forest Service as as a research scientist. And I think, you know, I never thought I would be sort of a career federal employee. Uh, That wasn't really um, on my on my radar. But it's been I've been here for about 20 years plus a fellowship year. And I've, you know, continued to grow in the role and um, I'm really happy there. And it's kind of a place where I can explore my interests in, in people, nature and cities. I mean, I guess most broadly. Um, So my undergrad was at Princeton and was focused on public policy um, with a certificate in environmental studies. So I've always been interested in those, you know, those three things I just mentioned, uh, really, really drawn to kind of, um, the built environment, how it, how it interacts with the natural environment, the role of urban planning and kind of legacies of, of planning processes and how those shape kind of lived experience for people, but also how everyday people sort of, um, intervene in those systems to kind of shape and and transform them. Um, so after Princeton, um, I mentioned a fellowship. I, I got a public service fellowship where you had to have sort of a sponsoring agency. And through a bit of happenstance, I happened to find the one Forest Service employee who was in New York City at the time. Um, and it was right after September 11th. So there was a new project called the Living Memorials Project that was funded by Congress, actually. And it was both like grants and technical assistance, like federal agencies often do, but also a research effort um, to document and understand how people made um, use of landscape as memorial and sort of the creation of kind of everyday sacred spaces in the outdoors. Um, So I, I won the fellowship and I came into the agency in this really unique way where research and um, our state private and tribal forestry branch were kind of working together. And I think about that a lot in my role because it's never been just sort of research for research sake. It's always been very applied. It's always been in the context of working for a public agency um, and trying to see how that research can you know, help inform land management and help people on the ground. So then I did that for a few years and I wanted to go back and um, learn a bit more. So I went to do a master's in urban planning at MIT. And I thought that that was going to be my my terminal degree. I wasn't necessarily dead set on being a, a research scientist at that point. And again, I was still interested in this sort of intersection. Um, I focused in environmental planning and policy, but I took a lot of courses in the track on Um, housing and community development. Like I'm always kind of finding the people that are in these crossover spaces and and asking why they're even considered separately, I guess. 
Um, and I, and I made a lot of great friends and colleagues there and I had a, a mentor and, and my, um, my master's thesis looked at the role of civil society in the sort of restoration and transformation of urban waterways. So I keep coming back to the role of people, um, community-based groups, grassroots practices, and really kind of including very hyper-local everyday actions and how those can um, transform or steward or care for these urban systems. Um, so I actually never left working for the Forest Service, though, even when I was at MIT. I stayed on as a student temporary employee, and that was in part having supportive mentors here who said, you know, you're in federal service, maybe don't leave. This this could be a place for you and your research to, to grow. So I did that thesis even in the context of already having relationships here in New York. Um, so came back, uh, worked some technician jobs, which are sort of like research assistant, research associate roles, and kind of reached the end of where I could go in research without a PhD. Um, and then I was lucky enough that folks higher up in the agency saw promise in me and recruited me into this program called the Scientist Recruitment Initiative, where the agency actually funded my PhD while I was simultaneously working for the Forest Service. So again, came into this more academic track, but always having this foot in government. So I went to Rutgers um, and studied human geography there. And I I chose Rutgers um, both for having this sort of strong critical geography and political ecology kind of tradition, but also having a really strong planning school in the Blaustein School. So I kind of built my committee out of those um, two parts. And, you know, my dissertation was studying urban forestry and urban agriculture during the city's um, first sustainability plan and um, the politics behind it, the discourses that were put forth in this plan and kind of the material practices that were used to try and transform some pieces of the city. And I, and I pushed through to publish that as a book. And then when I finished my PhD, I converted to a permanent research scientist here at the Forest Service and that's 10 years ago. So I've just continued to grow. So even though I've had, I joke with my friends that I've had one job, I feel like I've had many, many roles and a lot of growth, but, um, I don't think without the context of working for a federal agency that I necessarily would have become a researcher um, because I am really interested in, in action and practice um, and, and trying, although from a very kind of hyper-local lens to sort of be a part of these um, local movements towards sustainability and resilience and justice. So that was a long answer to a short question, but. I hope it paints a picture of my my journey so far. Wonderful journey. I have so many so many things in there. I'm I'm really interested in, that you had this early experience um, working with different types of communities and actors uh, after your bachelor program in the Forest Service. I mean, this is really kind of a early on for you a transdisciplinary influence, and also that you studied environmental studies, which I also did in my bachelor. Uh, how that gave you kind of a a non-disciplinary focus perhaps and and how that maybe put you in at least for me into a more problem thinking systems types of thinking in an applied non like siloed academic way of thinking about the problems that you had and do you think that is the case and that that helped you throughout the journey to kind of position your work a little bit more effectively in an applied way um, I never really thought about it from that lens, so I appreciate your reflection, but I do know that um, many of my colleagues here in the Forest Service um, kind of thinking in systems or being system scientists is really, really common. Um, so, you know, from the outside, people might say, what does the U.S. Forest Service have to do with like civic stewardship in New York City, you know, we don't manage any land here, we don't have any regulatory authority, but we're not only interested in, you know, forest stands, we're interested in the ecology in, of, and for cities, like cities as social ecological systems. And so even though the system I study is very different from that, that maybe a, a, some folks out on a national forest or an experimental forest study, I feel like we have, um, kindred spirits and like kind of understanding the complexity. Uh, there's also a really strong kind of applied social science tradition here um, in the agency. But I do think what's unique 
um, like you said, is that I came in through this sort of more applied vein. Like I came into doing research prior to having been acculturated through a PhD process, mm -hmm. as did my colleague and mentor, Erica Svensson. We were both sort of, I mean, she's 10 years older than me. She'd come from a world of practice and working at New York City Parks and working in philanthropy. But together, she and I kind of crafted a research agenda and we sort of did it backwards we learned later like the very first thing we did was a public website a national registry of these projects that we identified then um and we kind of collected data from about 2002 to 2004 on these living memorial sites then for the five-year anniversary of 9-11 we worked with um designers and folks with kind of uh urban design background and we did a multimedia exhibition that was public and then only later do we publish our first journal article. So I think just the, you know, the practice of having, you know, your main scientific output be a peer reviewed journal article. We just weren't, we weren't trained that way. So we thought like, how do we, how do we share this knowledge? Um, how do we make it public? Um, how do we, how do we tell the story? So um, I, I think I try to carry that sort of, maybe it's like a beginner mind, um, into projects now that I have been a little more um, trained in the peer review process. And so I try to think about, you know, quote unquote, delivering my science in a lot of different ways. And I get a lot of joy and meaning out of that. It does mean probably I produce fewer, fewer journal articles than some of my other colleagues, but I continue to do transdisciplinary work. I continue to work with artists. Um, I created an artist in residence program um, in our agency and with partners. Um, I've done more exhibitions since then. Um, even the very first edited volume that I published with the Forest Service that I mentioned to you over email, Restorative Commons, it's what the agency calls a general technical report. And if you look at those, usually they're, you know, black and white with um, tables of data, and, and that's totally fine. But I thought of it more as a storytelling exercise. And I worked with really wonderful graphic designers and photographers and wanted it to be something um, you know, beautiful and accessible that anyone would want to read, not just specialists in the field. So that's about visual presentation. But I've also always really valued um, how do we take practitioner voices and recognize their expertise? They're just as much experts as academics. And so finding ways for people who maybe don't have the time or luxury to write an article or a chapter. So we did interviews or we let folks write shorter thought pieces just to have their, their voices alongside other more um, research driven efforts. And again, I did that book. I edited that book before I'd even entered a PhD program. And so I'm trying to retain that spirit of creativity and experimentation and, um, undisciplinedness <laughs> as we sort of get forced into these silos you know I sometimes joke that I think I knew the most about the broadest range of things when I was like a junior in high school you know like I knew about physics and chemistry and you know world history and like so we just get older and we get more specialized and it's like this process of learning deeply in some places and forgetting in other places um and maybe that's where I'm drawn to a lot of artists because there is really an openness and a curiosity to um, explore systems and and not necessarily need to be like expert in them, at least the kinds of artists that I'm drawn to. Um, so thanks for that question too. Yeah, that's, that's really great. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about experience-based learning versus education or yeah, formal education-based learning, because you had such a mix of it throughout your career. And then you went back and forth between the degree programs and also working uh, in tangent. Mm. And especially in working with different types of practitioner communities in, in government or with different um, community associations, are those experiences that you got, do you think those can be translated back into the classroom? Did you learn a lot from the classroom and take that there? Um how have those experienced uh, those experiences kind of shaped how you learn and how you continue to learn about this type of engagement? Mm, really good question. I mean, I had, I, I feel so fortunate in the educational experience that I had um, with great individual professors. Um, 
even the even going back to Princeton, one of the reasons I was drawn to public policy as an undergrad, which is kind of the reverse, like a lot of people would do that in grad school, is that it had that problem orientation. And for our junior papers, like one in the fall and one in the spring, um, we did a policy task force like around a specific issue and we wrote individual papers and then we did group um, kind of deliverables. <laughs> now I'm calling on memory from like 25 years ago, but it is what drew me to it. Um, so I studied, you know, kind of issues around um, welfare reform in the early 2000s. And, um, and then I did a study abroad in South Africa and I studied um, AIDS policy there. So I guess I, I have always been drawn to, to problem solving, um, you know, also in urban planning, there's a real strong tradition of having, you know, client-based work or community-facing work or kind of group projects. That wasn't, that wasn't all of it. You know, I certainly did coursework that was just reading and writing papers, but um, I do think planning has that kind of future-oriented problem-solving tradition. Um, then I kind of had to step back, I think, when I was in the PhD program and do a lot more just like... <laughs> spend months and months kind of reading and studying up in the theory. And honestly, that was, that was hard for me because I do consider myself like, um, like a progressive, a problem solver, um, maybe not, maybe not an activist, um, since I'm a bureaucrat, but, um, someone who wants to make a difference in the world. And then, you know, being inside a really critical program, I think I was, in some cases viewed with a little skepticism or not understood, you know, kind of what is your, what is your locus of trying to make change? Are you trying to sort of theoretically critique the whole structure of the system? Or are you trying to kind of muddle through incremental change? And I think that's something that I just wrestle with personally, because I see, I see both sides. Um, but anyway, it certainly got me more theoretical um, in the PhD program. But back to your original question, I think not everyone gets to have those kinds of rich educational experiences, maybe just depending on like their level of education or the kinds of programs that they were in. And I also just think there's a lack of attention to ongoing learning throughout the life course in a lot of professional fields outside academia. So if you're required to do, you know, continuing education credits, it's often like a box to check to remain accredited. Or if you have required training as um, a public servant, it's kind of a bare minimum sort of compliance based, you know, learning about, you know, civil rights or cybersecurity, kind of just the basics. But where do you go for learning experiences that are really rich and um, keep you connected to why you got into this work in the first place? Um, I just think, at least in the fields that I'm connected to, there's a lot of pressure for people to, you know, be out in the world working, you know, delivering outcomes. There's not enough resources. There's not enough time. So to take that moment to have that luxury of reflection and learning and dialogue, it's just not something that people are always able to prioritize. So that's something that I try to advocate for and create space for, like as a researcher who works for practitioners, it's kind of one of the goals of our urban field station is to be a space where for a moment we can kind of set some of our, um, you know, not set the mandates aside, but just create space for creative thinking, learning, reflection, um, and that and that that should be a part of people's job and then it will help them ultimately do their job better. Um, and I think the kind of learning that works best there is experience is experience based, but kind of, you know, drawing on great classroom experiences, like giving people readings that they can do beforehand to come prepared to really engage in a learning experience, having, you know, targeted discussion questions, like just having it feel more like a learning space and not um, kind of like an agenda driven meeting. You know, it, it's, it's something I'm still struggling with, as I was talking about in my talk about the salons, how to describe how to write this up. It's a little bit of like, you, you know, it when you're in it, you know, it when you see it and feel it. Um, and how do we kind of convey that to people that maybe haven't been in those kinds of learning environments in a while um, just because of time pressures and, and things that they're required to do in their job. 
So now I've wandered far from the original question, but I think it was about learning in the classroom versus learning through experience, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm also interested in how, given your tenure at the Forest Service, how you've seen the focus of the agency, perhaps in your local context, uh, change over time? And like, what were the kind of core focal areas or uh, problem areas of interest when you started? And how has that changed to where you you are now? And within that, I'm interested in the role of social sciences and if social sciences has had an impact in shaping that, mm. uh, shaping that focus. Yeah, that's a very big question. Um, I'll try to be somewhat succinct. I mean, one thing that I think is really important to start with is that, you know, I do sit in a unique vantage, which is I'm in I'm in research and development, you know, so that's that's quite a different part of the agency from, you know, folks that manage our national forests or that, you know, deliver grants and technical assistance to other land managers it, within research and development. Um, there's definitely um, a strong culture of of science and kind of scientist driven inquiry. We have a lot of freedom. We have a lot of creativity um, as long as it falls within the general bounds of our position description and the work unit that we're in. And my work unit is about um, people and landscapes of the urban Northeast. So it's um, kind of focused in a particular, you know, bioregion geography but also is about, you know, where appropriate doing coupled social ecological research. Um, another thing that's important to understand, which can be confusing because we all have these duty stations is um, that a lot of the work we do, I coined the term is place-based but not place-bound. So kind of using the site as um, a learning space as a living laboratory, as a place to develop methodologies or approaches that could then be adapted or applied elsewhere. So I'm not required to work only in New York City or even only in the Northeast or even within the Northern Research Station footprint where I work. I have collaborators in Paris and Hawaii and Wyoming, um, and we're all kind of connected through this sort of broad field of stewardship science and stewardship mapping, which is um, a method that we've developed. So um, sometimes it's through the research questions that connects us. Sometimes it's through the method that's trying to solve a particular problem. But all of that is, you know, that's the sort of general culture that exists within research. That said, agency priorities do shift over time. I've now been through uh, several administration shifts um, and I would say the biggest thing that shifts is the way resources and attention flow. Um, so depending on the priorities of the president or, um, the secretary of the agriculture, which the forest service is under USDA. Um, and then we have a chief of the forest service, uh, that can move resources to certain areas and away from certain areas. So attention to urban has waxed and waned. Um, a, attention to climate change has waned and waxed. You know, um, I think within a lot of natural resource fields, we're generally used to being, you know, so scrappy or let's say nimble or entrepreneurial. So I don't have like, a, I don't have to raise my summer salary like a university person. I don't have a huge lab of people. I, I kind of have my time and I'm primarily a qualitative researcher. So there's not a ton of overhead to the work that I do. So as long as I have my position, um, I can kind of keep doing my work almost independent of those, those shifts. Um, but that said, like watching um, the larger federal reorganization around, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act and like the mass mobilization of resources and what it takes to sort of staff up get those resources out the door. And then eventually it does come to research. Um, I'm now OPI on a project about wildfire adaptation out West. And I've, I've, I have no history of having worked on fire, but I'm taking back to the idea of like adapting and applying methods. I'm taking approaches that I've used for studying civic capacity and governance networks and adapting them with a team of other folks who have more expertise in fire and have worked in those landscapes out west and we're we're working together in new ways and so that certainly wouldn't have happened without this kind of 
top-down infusion of resources and attention. Um, social science, I, I, I would like to talk with someone with a lo even longer view of the agency than I have of like why, why we have such a strong um, cadre of social scientists. It just, it, it really stands out to me. Um, particularly here in the Northeast, there's a lot of us. Um, there was a unit in in, in Chicago um, that's quite large um, that's been around, you know, and and doing a lot of great work around kind of psychosocial dimensions of urban environments, you know, going back to the 70s. Um, we'd have units in Vermont, in Baltimore. Um, it when I came around and when the urban field station network was sort of um, advanced and really staffed up, um, it, it happened because of having a really supportive and visionary regional director. So um, our regions have a lot of autonomy. We're a very um, decentralized agency in that way. So um, since directors are the people who make decisions primarily around hiring and what positions get moved forward, I think it reflects um, folks seeing the need for social science. And here in the Northeast, we're the most urbanized, you know, we uh, of the regions of the Forest Service, we contain the most people. So thinking about human environment dynamics, like it it, it does kind of make sense. Um, but I'm I'm struck when I talk to other federal agencies, like sort of just what a, what a strong cadre of folks we have here um, and how that's not always the case in other places. And of course, I think there should be more social scientists. Yeah. Um, it's still a heavily, heavily, you know, biophysical land management, ecological sort of agency. Um, yeah, so this I've might been... be this might be a more uh, a question from someone who who still doesn't understand ex all the the insides of of this type of position and maybe a process oriented position. But how much does the, the research and development unit funnel those into management and and policy changes, for example. And do you see the role of research and development also to synthesize outside knowledge? So knowledge that's coming from academia or from other parts of society. And then is this the, the tunnel or funnel through which that then goes into the other parts of policy and management in the forest service or other branches of government? Or is it a little bit more dynamic? Yeah, probably more dynamic than that. It's not totally one-to-one. -one. And I should say there are researchers that sit within other branches of the agency, for example. So there are research scientists within the National Forest System whose job it is to do the background research that reform that informs like, you know, an EIS of a NEPA process. So those kinds of researchers are doing very, very applied place-based work, you know, that's kind of more tied to regulatory requirements around NEPA, around forest planning, but it's still research. Um, and then we're getting into the guts of federal government here, but we are in R&D. Some of us have what's called a factor four position um, where we are evaluated through this research grade evaluation guide. Um, we are evaluated on our, our scientific impact, our, our scientific output and our broader impact. In, and we go through a panel review process for promotion that's sort of like a tenure review, but every time you go up. So you do have to produce peer-reviewed publications or mm -hmm. you're not you're not going to advance so you need to advance science that could be broad theoretical that could be very very applied there are forest service scientists that have patents you know um then you need to also inform practice and that practice it really depends on your on your question on your geography there are some folks that work sort of hand in glove with the national forest system forest managers there are others that work with private landowners. In my case, I would say probably I work most closely with um, municipal government here in New York City, like the Parks Department, because they're the largest land manager and natural resource agency in the city. We have a long-term MOU with them. We co-created this urban field station with them. Um, we kind of ride along and do a lot of science with them. But I also see the broader community of NGOs and community-based groups, the civic stewards that I study as um, groups that I work with, um, maybe not in such a consultative way in the way sometimes expertise is seen, like somebody calls me up and needs my science. Um, I, I, for example, StuMap uh, that, that Erica Svensson and I co-created is um, a methodology to 
identify, map, and visualize um, all the groups that are involved in taking care of the urban environment. And a group could be just two people and have a name. Um, and the goal of that was to make them more visible, to help us build more equity into the system, to understand where there are more or fewer groups, to look for the network connections between them and how they influence the governance arena. So what it feels like for the groups that are on that map, it, it might just be that they took our survey. Um, for others, um, there are folks that use StuMap and the maps and the databases that we provide um, to help inform their outreach, to help inform, inform their grant making. Um, they're, they're, we have such a thick network of groups here in New York City, and we're just a handful of research scientists that we have um, deeper or thinner sort of connections with them, depending on the project. But sometimes there's a neighborhood-based group um, that has a really targeted research question that directly relates to my expertise where I can partner with them on a grant or help advise them on how to do a research study. Like it, it ranges. Um, we try to be um, a conduit rather than a bottleneck, sort of either we can help or um, we know someone else within um, Forest Service research or our university cooperators. So you asked about academic science, we, we definitely partner with universities. Forest Service does a lot of, um, we have what's called research joint venture agreements where we, where we fund university collaborators, but we also add our time and we work together on like three to five year research projects or longer. Um, so I'm trying to describe, I, I think it's not as one-to-one -one where the agency sort of says, uh, let's let's see what research says and have it like inform our policy you know um mm -hmm. there is pressure to have more um you know the use of best available science and decision making and having science-based decision making within the sort of washington office and higher ups um but i think especially because of the corner where i work where we're in an urban space where we're not the sort of land manager where we really are outside of our um kind of physical resource that we manage there's a lot more room to sort of decide at the scientist level well who are those stakeholders and practitioners that I want to have influence on and it, I've probably spent the bulk of my career more outward facing working with non-agency folks and only now through work like the wildfire work or some research we did about um the experience of natural resource management during the first six months of COVID, where I did some interviews with national forest managers. It's it's taken me this long to sort of come back around to studying and working more closely with folks inside the agency. So um, I guess it's a both and, and it's not a perfectly seamless you know, translation between science yeah. and practice. Yeah, yeah, no, that was great to hear a little bit more about it. Let's talk a little bit now about maybe a specific project. And if you want to, we can talk about a different one. But the one that we came in contact one, uh, about was the your work on the stewardship salons. And yeah, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about um, what you're doing there and what the approach is all about? Yeah, definitely. Um, I liked to share our origin story, um, which is that we had a, a postdoc working with us um, from Hawaii who brought a lot of thinking from, uh, she had a background in ethnobotany and anthropology and really kind of complementary lenses to my work in planning and geography and my colleagues in social ecology. We'd had many, many conversations about what New York could learn from Hawaii and vice versa. Um, Cause she was working kind of in a, in a hybrid way with us um, both offsite and then coming here well, well before the pandemic. So it was kind of unique. Um, and they'd been working with a native Hawaiian master teacher named Kekuhi who created this, stewardship training program called Halau Ohia that trained um, conservation practitioners in native Hawaiian worldviews, epistemologies, you know, culture um, as a way of really understanding landscape and managing it differently. 
Um, and it, and she's an incredible teacher and it involves, you know, learning melee and chants and hula and hay and string forms. And it's, it's like a deep dive into, um, native Hawaiian practice. And we wanted to bring her to New York to have an exchange with practitioners here. Um, not this deep dive, you know, nine month or year long curriculum, but a shorter workshop. And as part of preparing for that, she was sort of trying to understand the way the field station worked and who was in our community. Um, and she said, like, you, you need to organize yourself. You need to sort of prepare for this exchange. Like, what are you hoping to get out of it? And we came to realize that the people we were trying to organize with were sort of the stewards of stewardship, kind of the folks who are involved in um, engaging the public in care um, in a lot of different ways. So we brought together researchers who study stewardship, land managers who engage the public in caretaking, um, artists and educators who provide a lot of that sort of field-based learning. Um, and we just started meeting um, monthly and, and preparing for that exchange and then the exchange was just, I mean, I, I could spend an hour talking about just that exchange. It was really a very different kind of learning environment for a lot of practitioners here and for myself included. And I think people were really inspired and um, hungry for more. And so the logical thing was to continue these salons. And it happened in a really emergent way. Um, we developed like shared community agreements or ground rules. Like now it's kind of formalized in, into a way of doing things, but it wasn't always that way. We tested out a lot of things. So we generally try to be in the field, be outside. And certainly that's so since COVID all outdoors, um, do experiential or kind of embodied practice, like practice stewardship, do the thing, not just talk about it. Um, you know, walking, uh, mindfulness, um, you know, sharing food, um, a lot of these kinds of things. Uh, we try to learn from the land itself. So being in these, we have an incredible diversity of site types and physical settings here in New York from, you know, urban forest canopy to wetlands to meadows. And, you know, it's a very large city of 9 million people. So we move around. Um, we also try to lift up um, historically marginalized or diverse voices. So we've heard from um, tribal members, we've heard from black folks, we've heard from Hindu stewards, we've heard from queer and non-binary people. Um, they're all a part of our community, but um, they're voices that are maybe not as not as centrally at the table in sort of more traditionally, you know, patriarchal or kind of white dominated conservation spaces. So just making space to have different voices leading the conversation, um, but leading it in a setting where we really try to emphasize that everyone is a teacher and everyone is a learner. Even if there's someone who's kind of featured for that moment, we're trying to co-create this learning experience through our questions, through our, our own background that we bring to it. And so I think a lot of what we've been wrestling with is, you know, none of us are a master teacher like Kikuhi, and we're not going deep in any one worldview, but we're trying to grapple with what, what are different forms of stewardship practices and stewardship ethics uh, that exist in probably the most global and cosmopolitan of cities. In essence, we have like almost every, we have a wide array of cultural, religious, ethnic groups here um how do they relate to the land uh how do they value it how do they care for it um it's um it's almost overwhelming it's it's unlimited the amount of topics that we could take on and so i think that's why um we're keeping at it and i'm really grateful for my colleagues at new york city parks who are willing to experiment in this way and and be internal advocates for it and it's they're they're very intimate they're small you know it's just once they get much beyond 20 people it's hard to have a conversation and so that's something we wrestle with too we're like in a city of nine million who's at this table of 20 that we're creating um and how can 
those that have gone through some of these experiences help carry it forward. Um, and we're still grappling with that. So we're doing things like talks internally and externally. We're trying to write up back to your point about how do you then convey this knowledge? We're trying to write articles, peer reviewed and non. I think we've talked a lot about toolkits or train the trainer approaches, which I think maybe eventually we'll get there, but, um, we're still just kind of in a small, um, learning by doing sort of yeah. mode. Yeah. That's it's, a bit about the salons. Yeah. So interesting. And it seems like they're to really make these types of approaches transformative in a way. And I, I would argue that they probably are, and would like to hear your experience about what exactly makes them transformative and what are the transformative things that happen as a result of that. Uh, but I'm, I'm, it seems that there has to be a kind of willingness to be epistemically open to use an esoteric term to see and do things differently in a, in a different mindset or frame, uh, but also to kind of be willing to unlearn things the way that you've done that. And I'm wondering if that's at all been part of it. And then is that some somehow linked to the transformative potential that you see for these types of approaches? Yeah. Great questions. Um, and I think that that openness and being willing to unlearn is what we really try and take some time with in the, in the ground rules and the community agreements at the beginning. Um, and I do think it helps the more people come to these over time that, that we do have almost like a cohort, even though we invite a wide range of people, um, people sort of get the culture of being in the space because in the everyday, both in the Forest Service and New York City Parks, we are in very, very hierarchical organizations. There is a clear chain of command. Um, there is a policy directive. There is a management approach, you know, and those from below can't really always change what's coming from above mm -hmm. and so in this space it's sort of flipping that like we actually say check your hierarchy at the door that's one of our one of our <laughs> ground rules um but then how do you carry it forward it's a little bit of like an inside out process you have to have like a critical mass of people that have this way of thinking that it's like a culture shift you know, and so we're not just going straight to the top. It is mostly more, you know, to use the government term, like line level folks. And how would it change the dynamic to say, check your hierarchy if we had our bosses, bosses, boss in the room? Um, I don't know. Uh, so it's it's a very, it's a slow, sustainable shift, I guess. Um, and maybe that doesn't meet um, the urgency of the moment and the desire that people have for more immediate transformational change. And I do think part of why there's more openness to this does come out of crisis moments. I feel like both of our agencies have taken more time at least to acknowledge and try to grapple with diversity, equity, and inclusion and justice issues since the murder of George Floyd. You know, that was a clear, I don't want to say turning point, but moment of inflection mm -hmm. um where suddenly everyone had to at least pause think listen have more of these kinds of dialogue and fora um so once you've created some kind of openness or awareness um to a new kind of critical take on maybe existing practices then everything that has to line up to to transform and change those practices, um, that is a much more complex and longer chain. But I think having the foundation of these kinds of learning spaces is sort of, it, it helps be an enabling condition for that, you know, um, helps people not feel alone in that, in that work. Um, a really small example that my colleagues at Parks shared with me is that no other space they had been in um, sort of had this kind of ground rules, community agreement sort of context for opening a meeting. Like the meeting would just start. 
only in the stewardship salons did that happen. And now their, their DEIB group is, has a community agreement as well. You know, there are certain kind of organizational norms that you start to see um, permeating into different spaces that can allow for more inclusive and different kinds of dialogue, you know? Um, so it is, it's process heavy. Um, but I think that's one of the benefits of, for me, being involved in this like long-term relationship with, um, with the land manager. That's another sort of, I mentioned how Forest Service one of the hallmarks is sort of being system scientists. Another one of our hallmarks of our science is being long-term. So we're not just coming together around a grant or a specific research question or a specific site. Like we're sort of here for the long haul for those agency shifts up and down because the city has its own too, right? For these um, priorities that sort of come and go. Um, and so it's, it's also relationship-based. Some of those line-level people now, if they're career bureaucrats in 10, 20 years, they will be the leaders, you know? So most people that I talk to in DEI spaces talk about the needed um, cultural transformation of our agencies as being generational. Like it's urgent. We can't be, we can't sit on our thumbs. We need to change recruitment, retention, and hiring. We need to change the profile of our agencies, but we also need to be on like an ongoing um, learning journey and cultural transformation that doesn't stop. Um, and now that I've been here 20 years, I have seen some of my colleagues kind of rise in the ranks. So that's exciting. Um, I'm thinking about other transformative moments besides being open I think you know within research it's like where do where do research questions come from um they come from my lived experience from all the things I've read from the training that I've had um I can only generate questions from my own lens I'm never going to get outside of that but I think the more exposure that I have to um different voices and worldviews that I was, you know, not steeped in, in my 26 years of education, I'm going to fundamentally ask different questions. Um, and I certainly think of that as one of the reasons why um, we engage artists. They, they have this freedom by being outside of our systems of land management to ask really provocative, big, and open questions. Um, an example that I give is one of our first artists in residence was Mary Mattingly, who created Swale, which is a floating food forest. And she mm. sort of posed this question like, why can't food be free? Why is foraging banned on public land? Um, so she sort of took this notion of the water as a commons and created this space apart, which had its own management practices and, and norms, but you could you could harvest from that barge. Um, that's a really different starting point from the starting point of New York City Parks or the U.S. Forest Service. Um, but we worked with her and, you know, Parks really supported her and got her plant materials and got her docking space and visibility. And um, and now there's a also a food forest on land in the Bronx, um, you know, co-managed with... Uh, community-based stewards nearby. Um, so kind of like a demonstration site where before nothing like that existed. So being um, an engine for, for new questions that kind of come from outside is another source of, of transformation. And I think also what counts as, what counts as data. Um, you know, obviously there's there's a bias within most managerial regimes towards quantitative data. I, I've, I've faced that as a qualitative researcher, um, but getting people to think about um, embodied experience about um, sketching. Our salon last week was about sketching um, and how we could even incorporate that into some of our field methods. Mm -hmm. um, 
so from the question to the way of collecting data and what even counts as data, and then finally, you know, to how that information or the findings or insults, insights are communicated to the public, certainly not just a peer-reviewed publication, right? So a training, an engagement, an exhibition, a talk, a walk, a film, all of that, I think, has the potential to help us shift the everyday. And sometimes you don't know where the, where, which one of those sparks will be the one that hits. Um, but I guess that's, that's my hope. And I'm interested in your thoughts as a, as an expert in this field as well, you know, there's just so many inspiring thoughts and, and things to, to, to follow up on, which we'll, we'll probably have to leave for, for a potential round two. I love your, your coin term is place-based, but not place-bound. And I think your example of this project is, is just a great example of, of that. And, yeah, the mixing of transdisciplinary applied, but also justice oriented and, and perhaps even ethical oriented research practices is just really good examples and tips that people can can take away from that. So to close, do you have any any other things that you would want to share? No, just just gratitude for the conversation and for the chance to to reflect in a different way on on my work. And I was I was I was so grateful. That was my first transformations conference. And I felt like it felt a little bit like a coming home. I was like, oh, all these folks are speaking my language and this has been going on for 10 years and where exactly. have I been? And um, so it's exciting to find those spaces in between. And I hope that I hope to stay connected to to you and, and others and that community because it, it it can feel lonely to be kind of coloring between the lines or trying to do something like a little bit different um, or trying to you know, turn a big steamship around, but to know that there are others um, all around the world doing that from their corners, it's it's really gratifying. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Lindsay. It's, uh, it's really been a pleasure and hopefully we can continue again. The In Common Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC. You can find more episodes or resources on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org, 